I'm Adam Lissigore, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Okay, Ben. Here we are. Episode something. 51. 51. Holy crap. That's right. It's a good show. It's a great show. I'm excited. We've got lots of good things to talk about. We have uh, the fantastic Adam Lissagore on the show. He uh, is the founder of Sandwich Video, and uh, we're going to get to the interview in just a moment. But first, close focus. George Foyt's close focus. George Foyt's close focus. Uh what are we talking about today, Ben? Today, I wanted to talk about the Oscars because it is Oscar season here in L.A., which means that you and I are starting to get screeners. That, that's right. And that is something that doesn't really exist in many other parts of the country or even the world. But Oscar season is kind of like the fifth season here in L.A. You've got summer, 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 winter and Oscars. That's basically what you got. <laughs> You've got yeah, hot, hot, kind of hot. Less hot, rainy, and Oscar season. That's how so it works. Yeah. To, to me, the interesting thing about Oscars, though, the uh, now extraordinarily disgraced sack of shit that is Harvey Weinstein, <laughs> uh, I feel like in the 90s, commandeered the Oscars and turned it into a way for him to get more prestige and therefore more money for the movies that his company, Miramax, was making at that time. Um, and many of those movies are awesome movies, despite the fact that he had anything to do with them because he's a sack of shit. But um, tell me how you really feel. I'm not a fan of Harvey Weinstein okay. uh, or Bob, for that matter. But uh, I, I think that it's very interesting in an era where movies are struggling for relevance that the Oscars, the Oscars are kind of like a Hail Mary pass a lot of times for certain movies. Also, certain movies feel like they are just made to be in the Oscars. That's true. Uh, but it's all about relevance because it's like, you know, like you see movies from years past. Like, honestly, I'll clean up my Oscar screener shelf and shred all the DVDs that the DGA sent me or that the studio sent me. You on, better. On, You're no, going to be personally liable. If no, no, I, yeah. I do. I actually shred. I have a paper shredder. I can put it through. But, uh, you know, it's like I'll see these movies and I'll be like, what the hell is this movie? And I'll kind of vaguely remember some movie. And I'm not going to name them because I'm going to yeah. sound I'm going to sound kind of douchey if I mention any of them by name. And God knows we might interview the DPs from some of them. But um, but it's like you'll see these movies. and You'll be like, oh, yeah, that movie was like they it, it, I'm sure it was a brilliant script and a director driven with an amazing vision and an amazing cast or whatever. And it's like, you know, sometimes they're the ones that get all the Oscar buzz and sometimes they just kind of fall to the wayside and and history forgets that they ever existed as if it was like a straight to video, you know, movie about a, a monster coming out of a lake from 1986. Correct. Yeah. And it's something that I might have worked on in 1996, more like for me. OK, 96. Yeah. I mean, to me, to me, the Oscars are all about relevance. It's a, it's a fight for relevance. And winning the Oscar will make a movie relevant, a movie that maybe had fewer eyes on it. Like, uh, for instance, uh, I'm thinking of The Hurt Locker. Hmm, sure. Uh, the Hurt Locker was a movie that wasn't a runaway hit, but did win Best Picture. And then it became a much bigger hit. It sure did. And in fact, there's a real bump that happens after a movie just gets nominated, but then even more so if they win. I think that I think that there is a certain amount of relevance that you get just by inc being included into the Oscars. And I got to say that, there are so many social campaigns that go on during the Oscars, which also then kind of take on another uh, 
another life of their own. And I'm thinking about stuff like Me Too and Time's Up and things yeah. like that, which have uh, come <laughs> back fo- to Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, exactly. That. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> Harvey had more influence on the Oscars than he than he thought yeah. he did. So it's in, in the worst possible way. So and, and, you know, for you at home who maybe think that, hey, just Ilya and Ben are always harping on Harvey Weinstein. If you were outside of Los Angeles. I don't know if Harvey is sort of like the daily news that he is here. Like here, uh, he went to a comedy club. Did you hear about well, this? Well, this is in New York, actually. Oh, okay. Well, but I mean, but daily news here. This is like, this is, yeah. this is big news here. I don't know if it is in, you know, Sacramento. So, but here it's, it's, it's a story. Is Sacramento the stand-in for the rest of the country for Yes, you? it is pretty close. There are yeah. like cities in other states even. I, I could have said, uh, you know, uh, Kansas City. Can I say my my uh, my go-to is Branson, Missouri. Branson. All right, good. Yeah, yeah Br- Br- Branson, you know, is quite the, the entertainment yeah. capital of the Midwest. Yakov Shmirnov has a comedy club there. I, I, I've heard that. I hear you can also see like, um, oh God, uh, Gilbert Gottfried. So. I would go to Branson just to see Gilbert Gottfried. Anyway, so, so to me... Uh, it, it's interesting to see that. And I feel like there's like several categories that break down. Like, for instance, we did a, a series of interviews with people who worked on Jojo Rabbit, which is definitely a movie that's being teed up for Oscar consideration for uh, sure. And deservedly so. Totally deservedly so. But no part of that movie to me felt like homework to watch. That movie was pure joy. But there are movies that feel like they are important with a capital I, like it, like there is an I branded on them, and you must watch them because they are important Oscar movies. Are you talking about documentaries or narratives or? I mean, doc. I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna beat up on documentaries because it's hard enough to get a documentary made no matter what it is. I, I'm thinking again. I don't want to name names because I'm gonna get myself in trouble, and you know we're gonna God knows we're gonna bring in some of these DPs. Uh, you know, I'll I'll, I'll go back. Uh, you go know, back a few years. I'll go back to like you know uh, in the 80s. Out of Africa was out like of Africa was that an was, important was, Oscar it, movie. It was a it was a David Lean movie starring uh, Meryl Streep and Kevin Klein. If I'm not mistaken, I got to look. It doesn't matter. Okay, I know it was Meryl Streep. You know, it's like everything about it stinks of this is an important movie. This is important. This is homework. A movie that I actually really liked when I saw it. I don't know how it would hold up if I watch it now, but Gandhi, you know, and Gandhi, I believe that year beat E.T. in the Oscar race. And it's like, well, you kind of zoom forward in, in time and how many people go back in time and look at as good as it was. You know, Sir Ben Kingsley playing uh, Gandhi versus E.T., which is a movie that is is considered very important and, and go even way further back. Leonard Malton gave me shit for this, rightfully so. Hmm. But Citizen Kane, the movie that is considered like one of the not, best of all time, if, if not yeah. the best, you know, in yeah. the top three or three to five best. It's certainly a very innovative movie. Lost the best picture to do you remember what? No. How green was my valley? Oh, wow. That perennial favorite that we all talk about all the time. How green was my valley? Now Leonard Malton said, "Don't don't trash How green was my valley." I I honestly can't trash it because I've never seen it. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, there is something though about the relevance of uh, the Oscars and how they sort of fit into uh, the global phenomenon of entertainment and culture and everywhere else. You know, some places movies are not a big deal. Uh, L.A. seems to be the land of places where movies are a big deal. And well, it's a big st- industry here. You it, know, it really is. And, they, and but, if you're in Nashville, music is kind of a thing that people are going to talk about. Yeah, and, and many other places too, or Austin for yeah. yeah. 
this this industry town for for movies friday nights saturday nights sell out there they they keep building theaters they keep adding more places but uh oscar season uh ushers in a few other sort of interesting things that happen here including one of my favorite things of all time which i'm going to try to make happen uh just before the oscars is docu day do you know about docu i don't know about docu so docu day is an incredible day where you either leave uh, feeling uh, incredibly invigorated and uh, amazed at the art you've just witnessed, or you want to throw yourself off a bridge. There's really kind of nothing in between. I kind of start wanting to throw myself off a bridge, so should I just not go to DocuDay? Probably better to skip it, because uh, DocuDay, what they do is show you all five Academy Award-nominated documentaries and all of the shorts back to back to back to back to back. So you start off early in the morning, you end late at night, and you have now seen everything, and you can actually feel informed for the Oscar race. Sounds that like category. something I would have done before I had a kid. That is exactly the thing my wife and I used to do before kids. We have not done it since kids. I would totally but, have done that, because I honestly, I love nothing more than a good documentary, and I feel like we're sort of in a golden age of, of amazing documentaries right now. And I will tell you that the documentaries, when you were talking about like stamping with a capital I, there are some there that's like, they are there because this is an important movie and people should see it. And they are, the Academy is doing the best they can to shine a light on important stories that need to be out there. Uh, and it doesn't cost terribly much to go experience DocuDay. And if, if you are in Los Angeles the Saturday before the Academy Awards, you can do this. That's awesome. And by the way, I'm not like trying to trash things like out of Africa. I'm just saying like there are, <laughs> you're backpedaling now. I am. There are movies that to me become so lost in their Oscar uh, campaign that you don't realize that they're supposed to be entertaining. Like you're not going there to be entertained. You're going there to like appreciate fine art. And I sort of feel like when something feels like homework, it is, it is. Yeah. And, and when I'm getting these screeners, I mean like, because, because I'm in the director's guild and I get these screeners, I, I try and watch everyone all the way through, but everyone, uh, the ones that, yeah, well the ones, yes, the ones in the categories that I'm able to vote for, I try and watch them all. I don't get to every single, single one of them, but I do try. But there are some where after a while, because I'm watching them at home, I disengage and start playing words with friends on my phone a little bit because I because I just don't, I, because I'm not feeling it. And, uh, you know. It, I only have one thing to say to that. What? Banana pants. <laughs> and with that, Ilya, yeah. who is our guest today? Our, our, guest, to, our guest today is uh, Adam Lissagor. And uh, Adam is, as I said in the in the intro intro, the founder of Sandwich Video, which is one of the uh, coolest production companies in uh, the Los Angeles region. And I don't want to say too much because we get all into it in the interview. So all right. Well, without further ado, let's just hop right in. Here it is. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. We are back with the Cinematography Podcast interview, and I am pleased to introduce Adam Lissagor. You're pleased. I'm pleased. <laughs> Adam, you're with a company called Sandwich Video, and yeah. uh, that is your company. It's my and company. I don't think I can do a good job introducing it as nearly as well as you can, so, so tell me about Sandwich. Oh, I'll give it a go. Sandwich started nearly 10 years ago, unofficially 10 years ago. Um, when I got way, I was working in post-production, visual effects, cutting commercials, working on movie stuff. And I got way more interested in technology than in, in the movies and uh, commercials I was working on. And the iPhone came out and a friend of mine and I partnered up and made an iPhone app, which was for creative writing on Twitter. 
Um, yes, somewhat niche at the at the time, especially 140 characters at a time. Yeah. And 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 in the confines of those 140 characters, trying to be as clever as possible and put as much care into your Twitter um, output as you could, which was a very, very strange idea for an app. Anyway, I made a little commercial because I came from that background, filmmaking background. I made a little commercial to promote that app. And then by surprise, um, the the commercial ended up getting more attention than the app did. And the app had its fans and had and developed a little sort of community. But um, the commercial was, I think, a newer take on this kind of marketing than people had seen before. And in short order, I started getting inquiries from big companies. Um, and it was when the burgeoning tech scene was just heating up. So, you know, I got I got a, a I got interest from a little company that hadn't launched yet called Square because they wanted me to help launch their little dongle that they're working on and things like that. And, and so before I knew it, I was doing these little videos and had started a company and it was all on accident and, and it's still going on <laughs> by some happy accident. It's still going on. Uh, okay. Well, I guess I should probably uh, chime in then to uh, of how we intersect and how I got to know about your company, which mm-hmm. uh, was, was several years ago. Uh, I started my company about 10 years ago and at some point, uh, God, I don't know, it was 2013, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sandwich video reached out to us for an airy package for, for an airy camera. And uh, I have a way of uh, following the people who work with us, and I have sort of tracked your progress just in the past six years or so. And I have to give you major kudos and props because your website today and what you guys are doing today versus six years ago, of course, I mean, but dude, your growth has been incredible. You've got at least a hundred projects on your, on your homepage there. Uh And, uh, and your, your, your demo reel looks, looks dynamite. So I'm, I'm really, really pleased to see that, uh, that, that you've done so well and that we were able to have some sort of part in, and, you know, in helping you guys on. on Oh, absolutely. I mean, the gear is so important and it's funny like you can sort of map out the trajectory of the company by what gear you work with. Um, I think that my first equipment purchase before I really started the company was that I was working on a side project with a, a friend of mine. We made this men's style web series called Put This On. And as part of the sort of fundraising effort for that, we kickstarted the first season. I bought a a 7D and that was my that was the biggest equipment purchase of my life at the time. Very popular. Yeah. Very, 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 popular. very popular. Yeah. I had a kit lens and I also bought um some other lens. I'm not a gearhead. I'll preface by saying we're, that. we're not a gear podcast. So it's it's, it's <laughs> yeah. actually good, but I, I just okay. wanted to throw it in. It's like, you know, this is how this is like how we, we come together and I've wanted to reach out to you and what you guys are doing for for a long time and it just now finally came out like it it, it meshed perfectly with our timeline and everything else. And you're sort of the first commercial digital marketing agency creator that that we've had on the show and I want to have a lot more and I think it's great that you're here because you're working at you're working at you're working at an incredibly high level and you have a very unusual business model and I do do definitely want to talk about that because uh, it correct me if I'm wrong but I've heard that you take equity stakes in some of your clients mm-hmm. uh, how, how does that how does that happen that's true um, and because I started when when I started the company and was working with these early stage startups who you know a lot of their their capital is coming from venture capital, <laughs> which is something I didn't really know about at all when I started. But I've I've since learned quite a bit about there's this opportunity where they, they need something that has a, a high degree of value 
they don't necessarily have the money to pay for all of that value, but they do have something called equity. And so we would often arrange these um, these splits of, of actual real money and a little bit of equity and write our contracts that way. And then so in that way, I've gotten to participate with somewhere in the neighborhood of between 40 and 50 of our of our clients. It's definitely tapered off over the over the past few years because uh, there was a run there where it was like there was so much heat in, and VC money floating around in the tech world. But I think it's kind of settled down a little bit. And, you know, to be honest, I, I realized the value of actual money in the bank and um, the paper is it, it proves less and less valuable to me. <laughs> well, you like I think a lot of entrepreneurs yeah. and uh, investors, uh, you only need one. You only yeah. need, like, oh, yeah. you only, yeah, need... You only need the one unicorn. I'm still yeah. waiting for the, it. the next Facebook or Uber. Yeah, I've missed a couple of unicorns. That, you know, I, I think we all have. I think that you know that, that it's um, it's kind of amazing uh, if you're around long enough, all the people that you interact with and and where are they now? Right. Uh, production assistants who are now incredible producers. One of my former interns won an Academy Award a few years ago. It's like, oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's too many of those stories to share with people who are working with us early on and and now have all this mind mind blowing success. I mean, I could, you know, I, I could name a name drop a couple <laughs> for sure. But I mean, just to, to, to finish the thought of how we connected. Yeah, yeah. Mapping out progress in gear purchases. I started with the 7D when the um, I'm sorry, I totally derailed. No, you. that's all right. No. But <laughs> oh, OK, we're, you, we'll, you, we'll come back to that. Yeah. So, so OK, 70. When the C300 came out, oh, we, sure. Sandwich was able to purchase one of the first ones in L.A. Like mm-hmm. I, I just got in there so early and was so excited about um, getting to do this without, you know, having to be um, stuck in the constraints of DSLR world. And then when we were ready to level up it, and when the Amira came out, then that's when we got in touch with you. And so it was really a game changer for us. We, we had been uh, renting Alexa packages, but when, when it made enough business sense and we had enough money in the bank to actually own some gear and rent it back to ourselves, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah, absolutely. If you if, And if you are prolific the way that you are, where you're doing work all the time, yeah. you amortize the cost of that purchase. I mean, I, I have this conversation with people all the time, uh, almost daily, uh, the, the whole idea of rental versus purchase. And I tell people all the time, you should not purchase something. This is not the right thing, but there are people like you and what, what you're doing. Purchases make a ton of sense because you're constantly working with it. You're constantly using that stuff and yeah. you're able to get value back you know, so much faster. And then uh, it, it's paid for itself before you know it. That's right. And there are so many, as a, as a business owner, you know this, there are so many irresponsible ways to spend money. <laughs> oh my God, yes. <laughs> you know, there are so many wrong things to blow all your cash on and you and if it's your first time doing it, you have no idea. You don't know why you shouldn't hire a full-time barista. <laughs> you know, it's, it's you sa- know? It sounds like you're speaking from experience. Here. Yeah. Well, no, no, I'm fairly conservative with that stuff. And that's my, that's kind of my point is that it took a while to, to really feel comfortable spending that wad of cash on a, on a big piece of gear. Um, the best entre- entrepreneurs I think actually are pretty conservative. People always talk about entrepreneurs being risk takers. All the people I know who have businesses of, of any size, uh, the risks are super calculated. They're yeah. really calculated. You've looked at it at every possible angle before you say, yes, I'm, I'm spending that. Totally. Money. And I think that that comes along with an obsessive degree of thinking over overthinking about things. And like, that's, you know, it takes obsession to be successful in some, in some ways as a, especially as a business owner. And that, that's why you overthink these kind of decisions we, in, instead of just 
spending recklessly. And if it, I, I mentioned I came from the visual effects world, and my the 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 guys that I worked with uh, or that I worked for before for six years, if there's one thing I learned from them, other than just obsession with detail when reviewing shots and stuff, it was just how to spend money on the right things and not on the wrong things. Oh yeah. If you, if you spend it on the right things, you can make $1 look like a thousand dollars. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. You multiply your value and that's what you want to do as a business owner. You put it on the screen or you put it into the stuff that actually, yeah, it has, has really good payback. Yeah. And and I would also attribute that that to some, to some luck working with producers and people early on. And I think about it all the time. I think how fortunate I was in the first handful of jobs to have hooked up with the people that I did because I didn't realize it, but they were adding so much value to, to this baby, tiny baby company that I had no idea. And I mean, like the big one that comes to mind, actually two of the DPs I've worked with the most are, are former guests of your show. Oh, fantastic. And the, like, honestly, the first DP that I ever had the chance to hire to, to spend money on and not shoot myself, but actually not shoot something myself, but actually hire a DP was Rachel Morrison. Good choice. Yeah. Very, very, right? very good choice. Yeah. So, uh, good personnel decision there. Oh, around what year was that, do you think? Oh, yeah, gosh, I, mean, I want to say 2011, All 2010 right. or 2011. Um, we, she had gone to Tisch where I went to school as an undergrad. Um, we didn't really know each other that well then. We had friends in common for sure. Um, we'd sort of crossed paths a couple of times in the decade since we graduated. And I knew she was in L.A. And then when I started getting these paying clients, I mean, I shot the first couple of things myself on my 7D. But then when it was time to have like when I had a real budget when it which was at the time it was I think fifteen thousand um, dollars and I like thought I could pay for the world with that fifteen thousand dollars. When you go from 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 such limited means to suddenly having fifteen thousand dollars, it's like wow, it's a king's ransom. It's <laughs> yeah. incredible. And if you know, granted, it was the client was a multi billion dollar biotech company. Mm. Um, you're, you're like probably should have been forty five thousand. Oh, at <laughs> least yeah. Um, these are the lessons we learn. Of course, this is how we price things out, we find our market value. I mean, you're in a business where your market value is somewhat a little bit more cemented because you it know is. a retail value, and you know, wholesale value. Oh, yes. We can't charge whatever price we would like. Yeah. There's there's one large East Coast company that basically sets the prices for everyone else and you either match it or you don't. And that's 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 how we do it. Right, so, right, right. But yes, in the service industry, in the creative industry, when you're bidding jobs and there's so many nebulous uh, line items that where we're dollars could be spent and where it's yeah. valuable and what's not. Yeah. You, you, you get to learn really quickly if you're successful, uh, how to, how to price that for sure. And my favorite anecdote is that my first time getting a, a, a you know, a paying client, it was, it was, uh, I think it was before square even. And this guy got in touch right after my own app video, my own, you know, app commercial. Did you start in that commercial, didn't you? I did, yeah. yeah. And, and that's become a trend for you. You don't see a lot of post people becoming uh, going in front of the camera, but good, but good on you. No, you, it doesn't make any sense except that I was uncomfortable with the idea of directing actors. <laughs> All right, so so you were you so you were more scared of directing an actor than being on camera. Hundred percent. Wow. <laughs> that's kind of wonderful, though. That that that's that's kind of wonderful. I mean, and let me tell you, you you basically kill it. I yeah. like. I mean, you you go through and press for pizza. I yeah, mean, yeah. like you have oh, a cameo, yeah. but I kind of enjoy now watching for for when you make appearances. It so. can be really fun um, to do, and it can be not fun also. But you know, it all it all depends. Oh yeah, so yeah, so when this client gets in touch and there, and I'm on the phone with the the guy, and he says, um, "How much is this going to cost?" 
And I just thought of the biggest number I could conceive of. And I said, thinking he's never going to go for this. And I said, twelve and a half thousand dollars And he said, oh, yeah, I could probably just put that on my credit card. I was like, yes, ah. your world just shifted. And then that's how you got to hire Rachel Morrison. Uh, it was it was for a follow up job for that oh. same client. But this time I wanted to they wanted to do like a sort of a future vision video. We call mm. them a vision video in the in the parlance. And so um, I, I knew it needed to look good. And I knew that I was not capable of doing that to execute a, a vision of the future. And one of my strong reference points visually, visually was this film that I don't know, a lot of people probably don't remember or were never even aware of at the time, but it was called Code 46. It was a winter Michael Winterbottom film with um, Tim Robbins. Uh, I love Tim Robbins, but I've missed that one. Oh, so gosh. I'll, I'll have to go back to and check it, it out. Yeah. It's it's sci-fi, but it's very... Um, I'm making re- a note to myself right now. Code 46. Yeah, yeah, Code 46. It's a beautiful film. So visually stunning. There was something about the photography of it that I'd seen in Rachel's work. Because um, she just, even that early on, she had developed a signature style, which was like a lot of handheld, a lot of natural light. Just you could sort of feel her her perspective in every frame. So I, I kind of like knew that was the vision I wanted to achieve. So I, I got in touch with her and he said, hey, I don't know if you remember me. We went to school together. She had a, she had by that point gone through AFI. And, she, and I just remember her being so game for it. Even though she was already shooting TV stuff, she was shooting reality. She was by our metrics at the time, very successful already. She was just like, I like to shoot. Let's do this thing. And her uh, then girlfriend, now wife was a producer. So she produced the, the stuff. And I sort of at that time had two, two sets of parallel sets of DP producers and Rachel and her wife for Rachel were one set. And then a DP named Benji Bakshi and a producer named Josh Cohen, they were the other set. And both of them, when I look back at what they were able to achieve, like the high degree of exquisite production value that they were able to achieve for such low cost, I'm I'm just blown away by it. I mean, my my team can pull off magic now, but we're sort of like a little bit more beholden to the realities of being a 15-person production company. A responsible production company (laughs) with appropriate insurance and permits and all the things. All that that stuff. The things that we didn't do, yeah. Those things are not free. Those things, you you want to be responsible. All that stuff costs money. You need need a police officer. You might need a fire marshal. You don't know who you're going to need. Exactly. You don't know that stuff and you sort of get away with all of this this shit that you don't know is so wrong or bad. You can only pull it off for so long. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Reality. Well, well, that that that's awesome. So uh, it sounds like you had two awesome DP producer teams, and that they kind of helped in the really early formative stages of of the company. And you're, I, I noticed that on your website, you do a nice uh, like little uh, photo of everyone who's on your team there, mm-hmm. uh, and you're up to 15 people now, which is mm-hmm. phenomenal. Do you do uh, all of the production and post production work in house? I, I would assume that you guys must, but uh, I know that also some companies they farm all that out or farm out parts of it or pieces of it. And but you have a VFX background, so I'm guessing yeah. you're doing VFX in house. You're doing your pre pro in house. You're doing production. You're doing post. You do finishing everything. Yeah, we have a team of four people uh, on staff in post in the post department, but we usually um, bring in freelancers for. A and now we've started doing a little bit more 3D and fully CG animated worlds and stuff, animated designed worlds. And for that, we definitely outsource because we don't have that uh, capability in-house and all sorts of learnings going on there. <laughs> you know, it's it's what because I used to work for an effects company that had 
at any time between, I mean, it could be 30 to 100 people in-house of, of artists of all stripes. And when you have that kind of a resource or an operation in-house, then everything is very, I mean, it can be turnkey. You know, you need something, you go over there and you get it revised or whatever. So sometimes what we're doing now at Sandwich is we're working with people all around the world. I think that's part of the future, though, too. It I is, think, but yeah. you have to really work out your pipelines. Absolutely. Which we're still doing, and it's uh, kind of crushing us. You, <laughs> you also have to find, you have to kiss a few frogs, I feel like. You kind of have to figure out who, who are really the key people that you can rely on halfway around the world Absolutely. in a different, different time zones. So. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. I mean, it, it, having all, again, like owning the gear, having these people and having these resources in-house means that you can leverage you know, so much and that you can, as long as you keep your, your pipeline going of projects coming through all of your deals and all of your productions, that means, uh, more dollars retained for the most part, because you have those people in house, you have the ability. Yeah. You, you, we've kind of like, we've, we've worked out the formulas for, for keeping a healthy profit margin. And I'm not saying like, we're not greedy by any stretch, but I've sort of heard anecdotally, you know, from bookkeepers out there, people who work in production freelance, Mm -hmm. you kind of learn what are the standard profit margins that production companies are allowed to take by AICP standards or whatever. And they're pretty slim. And I, a lot of times I don't know how these companies stay in business. It's really hard, I think, for a lot of them, actually. And I think there is quite a bit of turnover. There are, of course, the giants who stick around and continue to do well. But Mm -hmm. I think uh, certainly at lower echelons, there's a lot of there's a lot of turnover. There's a lot of change and a lot of maybe, say, uh, consolidation or turmoil or however you want to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Churn. Um, Yeah. Churn. Perfect. Churn's the word. Yeah, (laughs) uh, absolutely. I noticed that you seem like you have a key people on your team who Mm -hmm. who you've worked with now for a long time. And Mm -hmm. you guys don't really seem to have a lot of churn of personnel so. no people i think people tend to like working at our company because like we're pretty even keel i don't like a lot of drama if there's drama in house then i don't enjoy my life and i have two little kids now and my peace of mind at home comes directly from having peace of mind at work and if i can't give my family that then what can i give them no, that, that, that's really key. You're a little bit younger than I am, but I, but I think a lot of people of our generation having kids now uh, completely, especially I'll say dads, a lot of dads out there, having children is kind of turns you into the best version of yourself. Like you didn't, you didn't yeah. even know who you were until you had kids. And then it's like, oh my God, this is who I am. This is like, this is what I'm doing. And, and, th- and that's kind of an amazing transformation that happens. It's like, unbelievable. And it's something that happened very quickly as not even bef- when my, my first ch- child was born when my son was born, but when my partner was pregnant was that I realized that this freedom that came along with not no longer having to be the most important person in my life anymore. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I love that freedom. I love that freedom. I love, I love that I get to care so deeply about the people who work f- for me. I love that I care so deeply about my kids and my partner. I love not being allowed to be so selfish anymore because I was really, really, really selfish. It, yeah, no, nothing like uh, nothing like uh, the birth of a child to make you realize, like, oh my god, <laughs> you know, really, like, or oh, yeah, like, holy shit, everything in perspective. How did I go from? Yeah, I, I was here. I actually think you know, it, you say it's fast, and it is fast. 
but I think it's about 18 months. I look at the people who I know when they have kids and I go like, you don't know what you're in for. And I'll they get back to me in 18 months. And that's when I really start to notice that like, there's yeah, definitely a transitional yeah, phase. You're right. <laughs> there's a bit of like, what did I get myself into? We oh, actually totally. have a, we have a swear jar here because my co-host for the podcast, <laughs> uh, every time he mentions like his baby now, I'm like, you know, like you're not even, a, you're not even a year yet. So I was like, just, you know, <laughs> wait, wait a second. You know, you got to put something in the jar every time you, he talks about like how difficult it is, like taking care of his kid and stuff I'm like you, it's all going to change. Oh, for yeah. sure. And I think having a, me having a kid was what ruined my podcast that I had. With oh, my, yeah. It was it's been a while since we did an episode. But I think the thing that killed it was when I had a family. Uh, there was at least six months. I don't think Ben did an interview, my, my co-host. So uh, re- regular listeners, listeners to this podcast know what I'm talking about. But yeah. hey, I want to talk about humor because uh, you have a very unique brand of humor mm-hmm. uh, and I am so glad that you have not lost that or it hasn't gone away. And if only, if anything, I would say it's been refined and now it's like, it is a very, very sharp, very, very smart wit that you seem to inject into a lot of your, a lot of your clients videos. And I feel like that's got to come from you or your team or something. There is a certain style of humor that you guys, uh, <laughs> we have a chief humor officer. Do you really? <laughs> yeah. I'm dry as a bone. I don't have a funny it, bone in my body. Uh, well, you know, but being the straight man, being dry is funny. There, 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 there is, uh, there is a, something to that. So, so tell me about the humor. How do, how do you inject this humor? How does the humor, is it something that is painstakingly perfected after edit, after edit and reshoot? Or is it like, we have a script, we know this is gold, you know, you put a lot of your staff, it seems like, in your videos, too. So yeah. it's like, how, how does that brand of humor come through? Well, for, first of all, thank you for that compliment. That's really um, kind. and it's, a, it, it's not kind. It's accurate. Uh, nice. <laughs> yeah, it's, okay. it's, it's really good. Yeah. Well, no, you're right. Humor is in the DNA and woven into the fabric of the company. And I think that if it were ever missing from what we do, then what we do would no longer be enjoyable to do. And I would do something else. Um, it comes from, I think, me being a comedy nerd from a from an early, very early age. Um, something that I have in common with Charles Pappert, who you know, who is the other DP that I work with all the time. That is, you know, a past guest of the show, friend of the show, as they say. And I think he and I have a similar comedic sensibility as well. He's one of the funniest people I know. Yeah. So, uh, so if you guys are on the the same humor scale, there, it's it's a Charles Pappert has. Uh, here, here, this is like, this is just feeding his ego right now. You talking about yeah. him, me talking about him. You stole my thunder. I didn't even have a chance to ask you who the other person was or oh, anything yeah. else. But Charles, I think, must be a delight to work with. And I've never worked with him on a set anywhere. But yeah. because of that particular brand of humor and what he he brings to it. Tell, tell me, uh, I mean, I don't imagine DPs are rewriting what you guys are doing. But I know that having a sense of humor is probably key to being able to recognize the funny that's happening and what you guys are doing. Correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here. Absolutely, but. yeah. In order to capture the funny, you have to know what's funny. You can't just sort of shoot and shoot and shoot and like hope that something in there is funny. I think that that's what makes a show, that, that's the difference between a show like Key and Peele being good or and great, is he and P, Peter Atencio were on a similar wavelength of, and of obviously Key and Peele themselves and the right, the writers and producers and everything, they all sort of know what's funny and they know when they've got it or when they don't. And that's what's kind of, to me, that's what's beautiful about the directorial vision and the photog- the cinematographic vision of of a show or a movie or, or, a, or a commercial or something like that, is that you're entrusting the person executing the vision, you know, the, the visuals, the visual vision of the show to somebody with a sense of humor and you, you're going to find it. 
Uh, I think that professionals in humor, even if they're not laughing, they can hear whatever it is and they, you know, it's funny, you know, that worked or, you know, yeah. that didn't work. And, and that's just, that's from being a professional. I've worked on plenty of things that, that were funny and, uh, there were certain people whose opinion you wanted to trust and other people's you did not. <laughs> so, so, oh yeah. Just, and often yeah. the people who you don't, whose opinion you don't want to trust are the ones that are writing the check and they're the ones who are giving you the notes on the edit and you're like, and they're the ones telling you what they do think is funny or what they don't think is funny or what their husband or wife think is funny. And they, and you, you can't really say shut up. <laughs> no, but that's why the client monitor is way far away from set. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, so yeah. it's so much more distressing to ha- less, sorry, it's so post? much more. Yeah. It's no. so much less distressing to have it, have it on set because on set you do let's have one for you and one for me and we'll shoot my version we'll shoot your version we'll see which works in the edit they're making the final decision and they're saying like i mean i'm going through one right now we got to set Uh me and charles careful (laughs) measure your words yeah no it's fine (laughs) they're never going to listen to this and i don't even care if they do they know they're the client they know they know they know the hell they've put you through they know what they're doing I don't care. Um, but yeah. so we're the, the last thing Charles and I shot together was a campaign for a, a nice big known brand brand. And we got to make four fake commercials mm. for, for fake products. And then one real commercial for a real product. And the four fake commercials are supposed to be funny. And it's not that they're deliberately taking out what's funny. It's that when you're in a 30 second format, you have to take, you have to make really hard decisions about what stays and what goes. Definitely. And when you're in the marketing department of a big brand, you can't just, you can't make your decisions based on what's funny. You have to make them based on what is the best marketing and what communicates the message, which is the wrong way to make something funny. (laughs) <laughs> you, you've just reminded me of um god I, I want i want to say it was it was some sort of beer commercial but years and years ago there was a very dramatic voiceover where the guy would say here's to you mr so-and-so well right. someone someone did a parody of that called right. here's to you miss executive producer who doesn't know what a rough cut is i and remember it like, that it's a radio thing it's right? a radio thing. Yeah. yeah and, it, yeah. and it, it made its rounds for a while but everyone i know who worked in post is just like you gotta hear you got to hear this. You got to hear this miss executive producer who doesn't know what a rough cut is. So. Absolutely. Every <laughs> once in every few years, something like that, come, something like that comes out, like some agency or something will make a piece of meta content for us. Yes. You know? Oh, yeah. They, they make it for all the people who who'd have to deal with that every day. Yeah. So. And Charles and I talked about this on the last project. It was um, back then. It was truth in advertising. It was early 2000s, late 90s. And it was it said everything that needed to be said to the ad industry about how to fuck something up. <laughs> <laughs> by by being a bonehead, I think it's it's interesting that some people have um, really no understanding that what actually makes it onto the screen was not well. Sometimes it is exactly as it was intended, but quite often is not because there was someone who looked at it and goes, mm, "I think it needs to be different." Yeah, <laughs> that's right, <laughs> and and that might happen so late in the process. It's like, well, how much more money do you have? Right. So it's uh, yeah. I mean, filmmaking is is problem solving and and. This world is it's extremely challenging. It's all problem solving, and and it's funny. Well, you you had asked before when you were asking about humor. So much of our humor comes from our editorial voice as a company, and that the edit is where so much of the comedy either lives or dies. And I've had this experience so many times of shooting something that is really funny on the page. It's semi funny on set because usually things on set, especially in a commercial are not that funny because you're doing it 20 times 
you know, it's everybody's standing at, uh, standing around looking at how the product is facing camera or whether there's wrinkles on the on on her shirt, and that's not the conditions where funny stuff is going to happen. It's not like an Apatow movie where <laughs> like Seth Rogen is cracking James Franco up. It's just not like that. Um, and so like it's this pit in the stomach feeling every time I'm shooting something quote unquote funny for a commercial where to me it's funny because I can see what it's going to look like when it's all cut together, but nobody else around the crew certainly doesn't give a shit. They don't think it's funny. You know, it's not, it's not laugh out loud funny. No, they they didn't, they didn't have any idea what they were working on when they showed up at 8am. That's right. It's like, where where do I stand? What am I doing? Okay. That's right. And you just feel like such a goon laughing out loud and being the only one in the room laughing out loud. (laughs) Sometimes you have to be the goon. You have to do that. You got to do it. And, uh, for no other reason than giving the performers good feedback. That's right? exactly right. You know, yeah. encouraging them. Um, I always think this stuff is like, I, I love looking out for the funny take and the not funny take. And I, that right there, that was funny. That's to me, that's the epitome of directing is like seeing the opportunity, even when nobody else sees it mm. to me, that's, that's, that's the fun part. That's, that's seeing, that's watching a performance take, seeing an opportunity in there that they accidentally did. And then just heightening that or, giving the performance, giving each other something to react to, or you see that the specific um, break that they, that they took in the line gave you a perfect cut point or something like that. Or it it could be so many different things, but it's always, you know, to me, directing is about spotting the errors, right? The things that rub you the wrong way and correcting them as quickly as possible because time is money and seeing the opportunities that are going to take a good or mediocre take and make it a great take. And and like you were saying, you you shoot for for edit. You shoot for the editorial and being mm-hmm. able to find find that funny in, in post. Um, right. Is are, is there any tricks like when you're on set that when you're really trying to to find the funny or you think that well you know maybe that didn't exactly work the way I want to but I know that I can make that work. What what's uh what tip would you tell someone who's maybe aspiring to do something funny? But they're not they're not confident that they're going to be able to make it work in post. Do you mm. have do you have like uh, do you have like a alternate take strategy? Do you have a coverage strategy? Do you have a no? You just got to get it. What's what's your what do you what do you? What, it's a good question. Yeah. yeah, I think sometimes a good strategy is tell the actor shake it out and do the first thing that comes to mind because you can get you can get too much into sort of like result dri- result driven directing land and you can tell you're missing the intention and you try to emphasize this emotion instead of that emotion. And like you want to, the line has this trajectory in this shape. So you, you're, you want to come from a place where you don't realize this to the place where you do realize this by the end of the, of the line. And then they're overthinking it. And then you just tell them, let's shake it out and do it again. The throw, way you, yeah, throw it away, throw it away. <laughs> yeah. And then often the thing that they do that they come back to once they've gone through this exercise is the one that you use or often it's the first take that you use in the edit, but you just kind of never know. And you're doing yourself a disservice if you're not giving yourself lots of different options and material to work with. And is it, that's the kind of thing you can know as an editor. So, I mean, really my um, tips that I give to up, up and coming uh, filmmakers is try to learn everything about the post process that you can, because that's where you're going to have the tools to shape your shape your directing. That's your second chance to direct, you know. You've worked with a lot of great DPs over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, what makes for a great DP? Uh, clearly, uh, with what you're doing with, with comedy, I, I know that that's going to be important, having yeah. a, a sense of comedy, but there's so much that goes into it. You need 
someone who can uh, essentially marshal the troops who's they're running three departments they're running camera lighting grip yeah. but i mean what is it uh, you know what what is it for you that makes for a great a great dp you know what i like about this question is that if you had asked me what makes a good director or a great director i would feel like a poser if i was answering you <laughs> but the fact that i've worked with such incredible world class dps oh, yeah. i've been blessed to have worked with them I feel a little bit more qualified to answer this question. And uh, the answer that I find is most consistent uh, among world-class DPs is that they're always up for it. They're always bringing everything they have to it. And they're so, they're just a joy to work with. And they show up and they care. And like they dig in and they ask all the questions and they do the work. I was, I came up as a, I, as a filmmaker at NYU and you kind of get this classical training of what are the archetypes of a director, a DP, a producer, you kind of like, you still like fall for all the myth and the lore of it. And so you learn that a director is a dirt bag with an ego that shouts all the time. <laughs> There's some truth in every stereotype. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's, but, a, yeah. and then you, you learn that uh, a DP is, is an artist that doesn't want to do any of what the director says. <laughs> you, you just kind of learn about these clashes of ego. The prima donna. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's so fun to be disabused of all of those, of those misconceptions because my experiences have been, and I don't know if it's because I'm lucky or what, but my experiences have been that, I, you know, some, the, the, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> it could be where we are in the world in in time and place. It could be just being in this city or it could be being in 2019 where the planets aligned. The, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, which is a weird thing to say because so much is shitty is happening right now, uh, culturally and politically, but so much good stuff is sort of happening, you know, um, in terms of sorting out the good from the bad, you know, sort of, it, it feels like the arc of justice bending slowly towards really good, kind people with a lot of talent sort of get being granted some success. We don't have to go into all the minutiae, but you're, you're totally right. And we've talked a lot about me too and about other stuff mm -hmm. and how the sort of, <laughs> I, I, I'm tempted to use a term like draining the swamp of Hollywood, but yeah. you know, it's, uh, you know, it, it will never entirely be drained, it will, right. it will, but you know, you're right. There is this arc of justice that I feel like the good guys are winning one. I feel like there's, there's, there's room to actually be moral in your dealings with other people and be rewarded, yeah. which, uh, in, in the past it was like, no, the, the way that you got ahead was the, how hard you stepped on someone. That's how you, that's how you. Yeah. You and I don't know what changed. I don't know why the conditions changed. I don't know what, how much of it has to do with the internet or technology. I don't know. I think some of it for sure. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that there's some public shaming that, uh, that definitely has uh, caused people to change how they, at least how they are in in public settings. So. Yeah, but even on, like even in production, you just don't get away with bullshit anymore. And we work with so many women. We work with women in key positions as much as we possibly can. And following along with a lot of their um, their work and their careers outside of the context of our company, you sort of hear these stories about like, wow, yeah, a thing happened. And then, you know what? It wasn't okay that the person got called, the, the transgressor got called out. It was corrected. And then like we, we grew from it, you know, like the, things are changing and it's so invigorating to see that. All right. Well, I totally derailed you. You were talking about the stereotypes and I was asking what makes for a great, great, a great DP. Oh, yeah. And that, and now we're talking about social justice. <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> so what really, what, what really is it about 
the you know the best DPs that are. I mean, the, I know the willingness to get in there and to get their hands dirty, but there, mm-hmm. there, you know, besides willingness, there has to be competence that goes with it. There has to be the ability to actually deliver on what it is that you're that you're asking for. Yeah, it's funny. You take somebody like Rachel, who I've you know I shot. We haven't worked together in years and years because she's a little busy. Yeah, <laughs> but you you know she she probably shot you know ten or fifteen of my earliest projects and we you know we we traveled around Europe and down to Brazil for Airbnb over the course of 3 weeks and we we've spent a lot of time together and when you see somebody who cares even in the smallest context where they shouldn't care where there's like you know you're it's one setup of 6 during the day and and god is this even going to make it and the talent is awful and the, you know the the light that the natural light in this apartment is terrible and it was really hard to lug the gear up here and everything. And she should be exhausted, but she cares so deeply about it. And you just get that sense from everybody. And the only times that I'm truly disappointed about that, that collaboration of working with the DP is when you look out there and you feel like they're not giving it their hundred percent. Yeah. And it's not phoning it in, phoning it in really. And it sucks. And it's not about the money and Mm. it's not about entitlement of feeling like Mm -hmm. I'm paying you. You should give me your all. Yeah. It's about if they don't have that pride in themselves and the joy. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I'm going to say that you've given me the best answer. I think I've ever had to this question. I ask, mm. I ask people, I don't usually do all the, the interviews on the show, mm. but I do ask people like, Hey, what to you makes a great DP? And that's a really, that's a really great answer. You can also you know, flip the question on its head and say, what makes for a bad DP? But that list is long. Yeah. <laughs> that list is really, really long. And, uh, I think this, this stuff that is, uh, is very intangible, not just moving quickly. I hear, I talk to a lot of producers and I say, Hey, what makes for a great DP to you? And you, uh, almost never do they say uh, anything, but moving quickly. Like that is what they want to, they need someone who can move but uh, all the other stuff the willingness and the joy that they bring to it and how pleasant they are to be around yeah that that sort of stuff I feel like is that's what really I mean I I, I want those people on my team every day of the totally week. and and because it filters down to down it, you know the good energy starts from the top their crew Absolutely. their department yeah. loves them Rachel, Charles, their their departments will do anything from them. Lowell as well. Lowell Meyer is a young mm. DP that we that we work with a lot. He's on the you know up and coming the ASC up and coming list right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, nice. Shout out to Lowell. I love these people because they bring their crew to every job, and their crew will do anything for them um, because they're good people, and they'll take care of them like family. And so you got to have that energy on set. And and I think that the answer to the opposite question of what makes a bad DP is actually pretty short to me. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, be, it's about like when they let ego get in the way. The, the, when they let ego get in the way of collaboration. Okay. Um, you know, when they present an idea to you, a DP always sets up a shot and says, "How do you feel about this?" And you know, not all directors have a strong vision for where the lens should be or what what it should look like, where the light should be. Mm, it takes experience. And, yeah, 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 and I, and I sort of like, you know, I'm not going to say that I always know exactly where where the lens should be, but I will uh, look at it and adjust it because it doesn't feel like I want to feel, and so I'll make it feel like I want to feel, or we'll at least have that conversation. And so, a, a not fun DP to work with will set up the shot, and you'll say this is good. I was thinking we could sort of like, you know, boom down or be kind of over here. So we catch this a little bit better. And then they'll kind of shrug and say, I guess, I mean, sure, I'll do, I'll do that. Fine. <laughs> and if you do, 
Like <laughs> if they bring that amount of disappointment and ego to it, they're crushing my spirit. I, I, I don't mean to laugh, but like your delivery on that was like like something I've just like I've heard before. Yeah, <laughs> I I, or, I've, or I've witnessed before. It's like, sure, and I'm sure there are directors. Whatever. Out, yeah, <laughs> there are directors out there listening that are getting little PTSD shivers yeah, right I'm, now. I'm sure. It's like, uh, oh, why did I? person what yeah. am i doing for myself life is too short yeah <laughs> and it's funny being a new director all you can think all, all, all you can you show up on set and for being a new director with whatever 50 people or more around you and all you can think to yourself is all oh, these people around me think i'm a fraud <laughs> <laughs> right and so the last thing you want is for somebody to confirm that to you by questioning whether you know the the the, the direction you just gave them is is good or bad or whatever you know you want that support. I think the first day of anyone on their first set basically has that going through their head too. Oh, I think totally. I, I mean like the, the the greenest PA. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's like oh my god, everyone's going to realize I right. have no experience. Don't fuck this up. Don't fuck this up. Don't fuck this up. <laughs> I, I, I was think I was trying to rack my brain to remember his name earlier but um so i remember i i mentioned that benji bakshi was one of the dps that i worked with early earliest mm-hmm. um and he had sort of all these network connections and he's friends with you know maddie labatique and everything like and uh i didn't know it at the time but like my, one of my very first jobs the client was jawbone and our gaffer on that job for a five-day shoot was a gaffer named mike bauman who had who like you look him up on IMDb, he was you know like Claudia Miranda's uh, you know gaffer. He's he done everything. Yeah, he's yeah. on everything. He was he he now does all the P.T. Anderson movies. Is just like this huge dude, and it it hears me, you know, <laughs> directing my first things, ever, not knowing how I've been you know the presence, the the that I'm being blessed with the presence of these amazing people. But you know that that's it's wonderful to have that support and safety network there. What like when because when you have good people like you, they want you to succeed. They, yeah. they want that more than anything. Uh-huh. You succeeding means they're succeeding. That's that means really that nice. they get to move on. That's so a that's great like, way of looking at it. That's the way I, I like to think about it too, is um, it, w- one of the pieces of feedback that you can get from your, whatever it is, your crew or your talent or anything is like, you know, if you kind of get to have a conversation with anybody, that's a little bit of feedback. How did this go for you? How did you, how, how could I improve as a director? And, um, consistently, a, what a good piece of feedback sounds like is you as a director knew what you want and you were good at communicating it. Um, knowing what you want is everything because what that means is that the crew gets to go home on time. You That's know, they, exactly yeah, right. Or if not on <laughs> well, time. If it was scheduled properly, they're all going home. Right, home. exactly. Yeah, as intended. So. <laughs> and because they, they're not as, they don't have to be as invested in the final product as you do, but they are invested in getting to do a good job, be well-resourced, to use the tools that are going to make the outcome the best for them and really just have an enjoyable day, be fed well, you know, <laughs> it's the little things, it's the but, little, but, things, but yeah. those things are really important. Absolutely. Yeah. Being, being in a, an appropriate temperature climate. Like right. I, I used to work on a, I'll just say a kid's show uh-huh. that was really popular in the late nineties, late nineties, early two thousands that involved, well, okay, Power Rangers. Oh gosh, yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> there was no way I was gonna guess. That. Oh man, and the uh, the lack of air conditioning in the set. Oh for, boy. I mean, there was some air conditioning for the cast, basically directly where they were, but in mm. the stage, there was no air conditioning. Oh, it, it was so awful. And Santa Clarita 
in the summer. Oh, no. <laughs> it was so bad. Anyway, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to go down this tangent. Hey, uh, okay. So, so uh, Adam, we're we're rapidly coming to the end of sure. the, the time that we have available here, mm-hmm. but uh, this could go on forever. I want to ask you a couple more things, but I feel like the, the future looks extremely bright for Sandwich. Where do you see Sandwich in like 10 years? Because I don't see you guys slowing down. I don't see you guys stopping. I see mm-hmm. like world domination in your future. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. so you, you, you tell me like what, what if you could envision like, you know, this is an entrepreneurial question here though, because it's, it's your company and you've built it from essentially nothing now to a team of 15 and hundreds of uh, hundreds of projects under your belt mm-hmm. where are you going where where do you where do you uh, what's your what's your vision statement for where, where where where's the business going it's really funny i think that the answer to that is probably a little counterintuitive because I'm going into chicken wings. Okay, I'm sorry. sorry. Can't, no, can't, yeah. no, it's counterintuitive that in that I don't feel like our job is to grow. I don't feel like my job as a business owner is to scale the company. I feel like my job is to stay where we are because the world changes rapidly. Uh, my job as, as a business owner is to preserve my values and make um, continue to have the company be an enjoyable place to work at and an, an enjoyable team to work with for our clients. And like, I feel like if I'm trying to constantly evolve my company into a new direction, I'm doing so in a world that is constantly evolving. And it's like, it's like the tar- how are you ever going to know where the, where the target is? So I, I feel like the best answer to that question is to sort of like preserve what's true and important about the company. Like why, why is it that what we do is good if it is and like keep that result going, you know, keep keep being keep making compelling um, work, keep being hopefully profitable so we don't go out of business. That's important. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's just kind of like keep being able to, f- you know, put food on the table for 15 people. And I don't care if it turns into 16 or 20. I really don't. I just want to I just want. In that sense, it's a bit of a lifestyle business, I guess. You know, but but that's all right because I enjoy my lifestyle. Well, well you and I are of like minds of this. I've never yeah. set out to be a, a, a massive corporations, and uh, having like sustainable growth is really really important to me. And uh, yeah, it, it may be a lifestyle business, but I think we need more of that. Oh, I think for sure. I think that's actually what we need in this world. We don't need uh, we don't need another giant online monstrosity that you know rapes and pillages. And that's just, right. Yeah. And you know why? Is because I feel like whatever the value of the last two decades have been have gotten to sort of where we are now and it's not great you know you know uh, I'll go out and hear another make another generalization I kind of feel like generation X maybe in particular uh, maybe the last generation that selling out was the worst thing you could possibly do mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's been lost sort of since then and I know Millennials get a lot of crap and I'm not trying to I'm not trying to uh, <laughs> to, to give them crap because uh, we employ a lot of Millennials I love Millennials they're they're they're, they're wonderful but mm-hmm. It wasn't instilled in the DNA of the generation. I think maybe we got that from the baby boomers, but selling out, like if you're a sellout, oh man, that's that's like the worst. And I feel like today, like selling out, I oh, can't wait to sell out. Oh, absolutely. How, how, how quickly can I sign on that dotted line? Isn't how, that funny? Like yeah. the, the, the the idea of being a, an A-lister and representing a product when we were coming up, because I, you know, I'm, I'm 41, I'm Gen X. Um, it was so embarrassing that you had to go to a specific website to find where George Clooney had shilled for some Japanese company. Right. And now just that very idea, like that is the, that means that George Clooney has finally made it. Yeah. (laughs) Whatever, like whatever, whoever the A-list or B-list or celebrity is, 
we encourage them to sell out. And it's kind of like the biggest aspiration of a tween now is to be a seller. It is. To be a YouTuber. To be a YouTuber, to be an Instagrammer, to be some sort of social media influencer when it's like, what exactly are you influencing and who are you influencing and what expertise do you actually have? Well, you know, it's a, I feel like the lifestyle business. I feel like the uh, conscious business, the business that is like, we have uh, a particular goal and we have um, a code that we want to live by. That that's who that's who should be supported out there. That's who should be taking the dollars, not because it was one click to purchase or whatever it might be. So yeah. an automated algorithm to create your you know drag and drop commercial or whatever it might be. Yeah, so. and it could be that there's a big movement towards slow. You know, big big just a revitalization of that idea of slow growth or slow and steady or whatever it is. But it does feel. And it couldn't. I could be completely wrong, but it does feel like a reckoning is coming, or everything's sort of gonna break. You know. Well, uh, well, I hope it doesn't break too bad. I no. hope it doesn't break for us. Me so, too. Yeah. The world needs cameras and yeah, commercials, well, right? I mean, it seems like more than ever, but you know, uh, yeah, that definitely. Well, hopefully, uh, you and I will do will do uh, a lot more good stuff in the future. And oh, I want to thank sure. you very much for coming on the show. Actually, before we go, yeah. where can people find you? I mean, where 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 should people look up the stuff you're doing? Yeah, the oops, my my company website at sandwich.co or sandwichvideo.com. You, you do the Instagrams or they do? I do. We do. We have sandwich video on Instagram. Um, I'm lonely sandwich on Instagram is my personal one. We'll, we'll put it all in the show notes too. So if, you, so if yeah. someone's not writing down, they can go to Cam Noir and they can, all that stuff will be there for you. Right. My live journal, my peach, my Tumblr. All right. My Tumblr, all <laughs> you, you give us all of that. I'm putting every single one of it there. They want, they, okay. No. Yeah. I, I mean like I, I really found, I found my voice and my, community on Twitter, but I don't touch it anymore because mm. it's, it's a septic tank. It's the new MySpace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Friendster. I meant Friendster. That's what I meant. So. I love Friendster. Yeah. That was the one. It, it, it lasted It lasted for a bit. <laughs> anyway, Adam, thank you very again very much for coming on the show, and uh, we will definitely, definitely uh, watch for the stuff you do next. Thanks for having me here. It's been a joy. So, uh, Adam Lissagor, thank you so much for being on the show, and uh as an extra treat for our listeners, we're going to be doing something new actually on the Cinematography Podcast we are. YouTube channel. We are. We have a little sort of like, you know, anatomy of a scene, a little sort of like breakdown project thing. And we got a cool one from Adam, which is going to be the one that kicks it, kicks things off for us. Sweet. I know. That's going to be coming soon. So, hey, if uh, if you'd like to subscribe to the Cinematography Podcast on YouTube, go for it. It's free. It's free. And you'll see cool stuff. Yes. So, Ilya... I hear it's time for us to pay some bills now. Do, 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 do. Yes, you're right. That's the that's the music. Right? That's the bill paying music where we don't have the. Well, we should get K's to do some music for us for that. We should. We should. So uh, Aperture. What can I say about Aperture? They make really, really cool lighting products and they have a brand new one uh, called the MC. And the MC is this multicolor little light that uh, is incredibly popular and 90 bucks. It just was debuted. Really? And we are selling them like hotcakes. Oh, yeah. Hot Red Cameras will sell you an MC, and you should totally log on to Hot Red Cameras to see cool videos and information about the new Aperture MC light. Is it true that you can use it as a hammer? No. Okay. Well, you... No. No, don't, don't try to use it as a hammer. That is yeah. too legit. What? Too legit. To, I'm making MC Hammer jokes. Oh, whoa, whoa. oh, the MC. I understand now. I understand. Uh, it's all coming back to me. And like, yeah, I think MC Light was a was an MC too. And young MC. That, 
Young MC. There was a lot. There was a lot of them. But here's the thing about the Aperture MC. It's about the size of your cell phone, and uh-huh. it's full RGB, so you can have a red light, a green light, a blue light, and any color of white in between. Yeah, super cool. And I think that people will be finding ways to light entire scenes with only these little MC lights. Hmm. I might want to. God damn it! You're gonna buy. You're gonna sell me more shit. It. It. You know what? If I sold it to you, it's only ninety bucks. It's not. It's not too much. That's true. That's true. I've just bought like uh my my all of my major camera per my my major camera and film gear purchases of the last year have been here so well that's the way it should be i mean you're a professional professionals shop with hot red cameras and you should be shopping with us fair enough <laughs> no, he doesn't give me a discount anyway so music bed is our sponsor uh and here is their ad it sucks to get bogged down in the editing process while you try to track down a soundtrack for your film boy oh boy don't i know that feeling we've been there and so has the team at music bed in fact that's the entire reason why they built their platform They've made it easier than ever for you to find and license the songs you're looking for with an intuitive, easy-to-use browse and search, amazing indie artist bands, and incredible composers like Ryan Talbert and Chad Lawson. By the way, do you hear that music in the background right now, Ilya? Yeah, I do. That is uh, some fine music by uh, Ryan Talbert and or Chad Lawson. (laughs) That's awesome. I'm really enjoying this music right now. Their roster is growing every day with tens of thousands of songs ranging from cinematic to electronic to indie rock and even hip-hop. And with either single song licenses or subscriptions that give you unlimited downloads, there's something for every type of filmmaker. To create your free account and learn more, go to musicbed.com. Plus, as a cinematography podcast listener, they're giving you one month of subscription for free. One month. That, free. That's a lot of songs. Or 20% off of a single song license. And that those licenses are important when you're trying to clear stuff for air or even for the internet. You do not want to hand music to your uh, client that you cannot clear. You can clear it all on MusicBed. Just enter promo code CINEMAPOD. That's CINEMAPOD, just the way it sounds, when you check out. All right. And dear listeners, if you found Ben reading that ad copy extraordinarily painful, you should let us know because we'll, we'll just improvise these from now on. what I do? No, I'm just saying. We should, we should throw that out to our listeners because some people, and I know by some people I'm talking about myself, when I hear canned ad copy startup it's like that's that's my ticket to press the fast forward button you know what i like though i like listening to pod save america and i like it for the ads you listen to pod save america for the ads yes because i love how they you know so integrated into the rest of the show so john favreau will like do the boring ass ad read and then love it we'll sit there and make fun of every line and it's very funny pod save america is john favreau and john lovitz uh love it they are not the John Favreau and the John Lovitz that you are thinking of. Oh, okay. It is two guys. Well, there's three guys, actually. Uh, and it's usually more than that. But uh, they were uh, staffers for Barack Obama. Uh, okay, gotcha. That shows you how much Pod Save America I've listened to. I know many people who listen to it, but here, when you said Favreau and Lovett, I thought you said Lovitz and John no, Favreau. It's, so. it's, well, it is John Favreau. But it's a different S- Sorry Favreau. if my slip is showing of my political leanings. <laughs> Dear listeners, I promise to avoid it in the future. So, Ilya, I hear we have a new five-star review on the iTunes. We do on the iTunes or Apple Podcasts, however they want to uh, be called these days. We have a great review from Way Away Away, uh, who says, Great, great, great podcast. Cinematography is something I've always been into, but trying to get into it late in my mid-20s. This podcast helps my confidence a lot. Thank you. 
which is great. You're welcome. And you're not over the hill in your mid-20s. What are you talking about, late? Well, you know, uh, it, late in my mid-20s. I don't know. I, some people, I guess, think that if you don't start off when you're a fetus, you can't possibly do this. But I'm I mean, here to tell you that uh, you can get in at any time, at yeah, any yeah. point. You don't age out of being a cinematographer. You're not You're not an Olympic athlete. Not, not at all. As a matter of fact, there are some many cinematographers out there who are working way, way, way into their elder years. I mean, that's the stereotype of a of a cinematographer is, you know, somebody with very white hair. Yeah, well, there's there's a couple out there, one or two. So. Still a few. And now short ends. Uh, OK, so, Ben, uh, it's short end time. All right. So my short end is kind of a gripe. OK, I'm going to piss people off. Here whoa, goes. Whoa. Here goes. I'm going to court controversy. So recently, uh, Martin Scorsese uh, came out and said something about how the MCU movies are not cinema. Wait, wait, MCU? Uh, that's the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So that's like the Avengers and all that stuff. And I've never heard of this Avengers in which you speak. <laughs> is, is it very popular? No. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Some of our, some, you know, Seamus McGarvey. Yeah, I lost many of our, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. we've had a few people. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Salvatore Totino. Salvatore, and, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Rachel Morrison. Sure, yeah. Yeah, we've, we've had a few. One or two, yeah. Now, now, Martin Scorsese to me is still, to this day, an extremely uh, vibrant, alive. What movies has he made? Sorry. (laughs) He's made some of my all-time favorite movies, and he's got a new movie coming out called The Irishman that I think looks pretty awesome. I hear it's three hours long, but I still can't wait to see it. Him, De Niro, uh, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci coming out of retirement. Yeah, it's very exciting. So I I have nothing against Martin Scorsese, and I love his movies. And so to me, when I heard that, I was like, okay, you know, like I sort of feel like Martin Scorsese sort of made his career doing a specific genre of movies, and he's obviously worked in many genres and in fact i think some of martin scorsese's movies uh best movies are the ones that he's not as well known for silence was a beautiful film um uh coon dune was a was a beautiful film after hours i love after hours he's he's i mean he's an amazingly versatile filmmaker but he is known for genre films specifically crime films definitely so then steps up uh francis ford coppola which kind of got my has he made any movies he has he has made some crime movies (laughs) You might have heard of called The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two and The Conversation, which is a brilliant movie. Classic. And uh, what I would consider his last great movie, Apocalypse Now, which did come out 40 years ago. Vittorio. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Uh, I'm I'm not here to even trash him or Ken Loach, who also came out to say all the same things. I just want to say that. Recording controversy. It's cinema. I mean. Who who gets to decide what cinema? Who gets to decide what? Well, it, what exactly did he say? What did what did what did? Well, what Scorsese said was that it's not cinema. What Coppola said was uh, that uh, the Marvel movies were despicable. Hmm, like Despicable Me. <laughs> it may, may be worse than that. Okay. And then Ken Loach, n- not exactly known for edge of your seat thrill a minute movies, called them boring. Okay, okay, you know um, I, yeah. now. I'm not here to to defend superhero movies. I think that maybe we're seeing a few too many of them, maybe a, a few more of them than I wish I had in my life. I just don't go to as many of them as I used to because there seems to be a new one out every week, which to me would be my big gripe is it's just too much of a good thing. But that being said, when, for instance, uh, to, to, to take it to a personal level, because I worked on the Blair Witch Project, there are people who I know, not a superhero movie, not a superhero movie, but a genre film. There are people who I know. Uh, one of them is my friend Joe Bagos, who's a filmmaker. He's an amazing filmmaker. He's got a new movie called Bliss that's on, on Amazon right now. Everyone should check it out. Uh, Joe loves Blair Witch 2. Hmm. So does Sam Zimmerman, who's the main curator at Shudder. Now, I believe 
it is a indisputable fact that Blair Witch 2 is a pile of garbage. Mm, it's not okay. a good film. <laughs> but at a certain point, I have to go, I lack a little bit of objectivity, obviously, because I was part of the creation of the first Blair Witch movie. But also, I have to kind of go, what do I care if you like it? Like, if you like Blair Witch 2, go Blair Witch 2 it up all day long. Who gives a shit if what you like? You know, the the, the truth is that these Marvel movies are sort of propping up the industry. So, you know, I, I'm not... Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's like the, the big bombastic movies, like the Fast and the Furious movies and the, you know, the MC, Harry Potter's. MCU movies. Well, they're not... I guess they're doing the... They're doing some new Harry Potter's yeah. and just and their and Star Wars. I mean. Star Wars. It's it's the big genre movies, and I actually think uh, Ken Loach accepted, but um, both Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola basically started as genre filmmakers, and these are just big genre films, um, and it's a specific genre. And yeah, I think that the world doesn't need as many as fast as we're getting necessarily all the time. But if people like them and they're going to the movies. Yeah. Who are you to try to throw cold water on the fact that someone out there loves this and wants to spend their hard earned money on it? I know. And, you know, not for nothing, but Scorsese is one of the executive producers on The Joker. So. Well, <laughs> well, he hates himself. Yeah. I just sort of feel like it's maybe like I'm not here to attack Francis Ford Coppola or Martin Scorsese or Ken Loach. They're all geniuses and I admire their work. But I am. Are we taking these comments out of context at all? No, I mean, certainly not Coppola. Coppola was like building on what Scorsese said. Mm, okay. And he said, hold my beer. Here, I'm he, gonna. He kind of did. And it's like, just let people like what they like. Who cares? I mean, like there's so many, there's so many media options in the world. And I sort of feel like, you know, like when people would, would say that whatever book kids were reading was a bad book. It's like, kids are reading. Do you? Do you get that kids reading is actually the virtue in and of itself? People are going to the movie theater and they're seeing the Fast and the Furious movies or they're seeing the Transformers movies or they're seeing the MCU movies or or the DC movies. And some are good and some are bad and, you know, every every shade in between. But if you get people in the habit of going in and watching a movie in a theater, I think it increases your chances a thousandfold that they're going to go see The Lighthouse or Jojo Rabbit, or you know any of the other really cool movies that we want people to to go see in a movie theater. All right, so maybe courting more controversy here. Oh boy! If, if someone, okay, uh, just to play off of exactly what you just said, if someone then loves Kevin Spacey movies or loves Harvey Weinstein movies, should they also be going out and spending? I mean, I mean, and can we separate the people? Well, from I mean, the, honest, from the art? honestly, so. there are no new Kevin Spacey movies, and there are no new Harvey Weinstein <laughs> movies. And uh, I mean, Mel Gibson. Then it's an interesting question. Well, you know, nobody's accusing Mel Gibson of having done a special amount of violence to anyone that I know of. <laughs> Certainly, no one's accusing him of rape. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, it, it is interesting. I mean, it's it's a kind of a pivot off of what we were talking about. But like, you know, in, in the Me Too movement, I did sort of wonder, like, in a world where I can write off Bill Cosby, I can write off Louis C.K. and be like, nope, done. Yep. Because they are the author of of the thing that they do. Uh, the Usual Suspects came on, which, as you know, is one of my favorite movies. That's right. And I uh, and I was watching it. I'm like, is it going to color my opinion of it to watch this movie that features Kevin Spacey so prominently? And as I watched it, it's like, it's Kevin Spacey doing a job and he does his job well. And he's also not really the good guy. All right. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to double down on this now. You ready? Do it. Roman Polanski. 
I've stopped watching Roman Polanski movies. I don't even go back and watch old Roman Polanski. You don't Polanski. watch Chinatown? You don't? Uh, I, I can't bring myself to do it. I, I do collaboration think, again? I, I do it? think that it... I, and I don't watch new Roman Polanski movies, and I feel like, you know, the guy should have been in jail, you know, 40 years ago and and, and skated out of it by uh, leaving the country and can't come back to the country or he'll go to jail. I mean, I, I, I sort of feel like there's a complete lack of ambiguity where Roman Polanski is concerned. Whereas like Harvey Weinstein, you know, like if I watch Pulp Fiction, which Harvey Weinstein's company produced, and I'm sure that some of his some of his stink is on choices that were made in that movie, it's still a Quentin Tarantino movie. It's not a Harvey Weinstein movie. Hmm. Uh, if I'm watching Seven or, or L.A. Confidential, you know, Kevin Spacey's in the movie, but it's not a Ke- Kevin Spacey didn't write it. He didn't direct it. It's not his work. It's. It's but, his acting in it. But Death and the Maiden, it's uh, from Polanski. Yeah, I, I, I really have a hard time. Uh, I have a hard, and I'm not saying that this is how everyone needs to feel, but I do sort of feel like, uh, I, I, I'm not like super pro cancel culture, but I think that people like Roman Polanski are an argument for it, you know, because I feel like, and if you don't know what he did, look it up. Oh, it, yeah. It's as heinous as a thing could be. It's, just short of murdering someone, it's about as gross as, as 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 what anyone could have done was. And, you know, in the case of Roman Polanski, it's like, this is the case he was caught for. How many times did he do it before? You know, like, to me, that's... I'm, I, I, I'm personally done with Roman Polanski. It's really easy to not watch the movies that are terrible, that are made by people who are despicable. But objectively, there are some really good movies out there that have been made by people who've done terrible things. So, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree, you know, I mean, Chinatown is a masterpiece. Um, you know, he, he has a lot of, you know, Rosemary's baby is an amazing film. The tenant, you know, he's got a lot of great films, but I feel like I, I could have a complete life without revisiting those movies from here on forward. Well, uh, we'll see what sort of hate mail we get now after having uh, this been your short. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I think <laughs> we're going to hate mail. I don't know. No, we're, uh, I don't think we're going to, I don't think we're getting hate mail. I, I will tell you though, that this conversation comes up more often than I would expect it would, where someone mentions something and then it's like almost this like gulping moment of like, Oh yeah. It was that well, guy. I do think that, well, I mean, again, I, I wasn't really bringing this up as an, ex- like, you know, I, I know it was Coppola and Scorsese and stuff are talking about insubstantialness of superhero movies, which I think is sometimes true and sometimes not. I think Black Panther it's is a great movie is a movie that has something to say. Like it's it's it actually there. There's a point to it. It's not just, you know, good guy beat up bad guy, which there's a lot of that, obviously, in, in the superhero world. Um, you know, and you know, my ongoing gripe with superhero movies is like two invincible characters decide to settle their differences via fist fight. Yeah, and you know what? It doesn't have to always be the, the, the world is, you know, in jeopardy, but, uh, the but, dark Knight, Christopher Nolan's the dark Knight. The, the third act of that movie is a, is, is a work of brilliance. Sometimes a movie can just be a movie can just be escapism. Maybe you should just let the superhero movie wash over you, you know, turn your brain off. Enjoy or just the don't, spectacle or just for what don't it is. go see it. No, but, but you might really enjoy it if you like, you know, hey, there's a major plot hole right here. This is this is really, you know what? Turn your brain off. Don't think about that. Just just move on. And that is a legitimate way to enjoy the spectacle of something. It is. I mean, spectacle is a legit reason to go see a movie. And I agree about escapism. I mean, I I think the original Fast and the Furious was kind of like that, too, though. It was a spectacle. Yeah, a lot of yeah. people went for the spectacle. Yeah. It, they didn't get into Heidegger until the later ones. That's anyway. right. <laughs> <laughs> Hobbs and Shaw and Heidegger Hobbs <laughs> I never thought about it Calvin and Hobbs and Shaw 
anyway. Uh, all right. Well, uh, hey, I've got a great short end if we're ever going to talk about mine. Let's talk about your short end. I went to VidSummit. And what is VidSummit? VidSummit is really pretty remarkable. VidSummit is a uh, sort of like a convention for a... I'm not going to say a select group of people because anyone can go there, but it's not huge. Like they have an event called VidCon, which is sort of like the convention for YouTube fans and a little bit for business people and a little bit for creators. They kind of put all this stuff into this big convention that goes on in Orange County. Well, uh, this one happened down near LAX about a week ago and VidSummit is curated. There's a gentleman, it's their sixth year they've done it. There's a gentleman who basically started the whole thing and he went around and he said, hey, I wanna get all these people who are creating for YouTube and other uh, online video platforms and learn from them and figure out how to do what I'm doing better and learn how to better get my message out there. And there are people who, because it's cinematography, will turn up their nose and say, hey, the stuff that's being made online, the web series that are being made, the non-scripted series that I mean are like being made. mean like 20 Seconds to Live, the uh, award-winning web series that I, I uh, co-created in direct? I didn't say that you were going to turn up your nose at this, but I'm okay. saying that there are people out there who are listening to it who are like, ah, oh, this isn't Marvel or this isn't Coppola. Maybe I, I shouldn't pay <laughs> any attention to what's going on right now in, in the, the land of online video. But I will tell you, the convergence that is going on is really remarkable. And the conversations that are happening at conventions like this, or I would say events like this, are not dissimilar from what's happening on the other side of town. And I think it's very interesting to see where things are going, because if you look at just pure eyeballs, the eyeballs of people who are tuning into certain programs repeatedly on YouTube dwarf some of the stuff that's happening on television and traditional. Well, it's like you can't even use the same metrics, I think. That's because, right. You know, I, I sort of feel like a lot of the YouTube stuff gets uh, consumed on people's phones or while, while people are at work or it's in their Facebook feed or Twitter feed or whatever, like that's, that's where they're interacting with that stuff. I have to give huge props to the VidSummit people because I think that there is an impulse to just make as much money as you possibly can from some sort of uh, event if you're doing it, if it's sort of open to the public and how many people can we pack in and how much can we charge. I don't feel that about this one. I feel like they said there's a certain amount of people that we want to have we're going to sell that many and no more. And I have to say that that gave you incredible access to all the people who were there. Like literally you could be in there, the lobby of the hotel and there could be three or four people who are all going to be speaking later that day, hanging out and you can go over and talk to any single one of them. What, what kind of people are speaking there? A, a wide variety, a wide variety of people. But I would say many of them have hundreds of thousands to millions of. So they're uh, YouTubers. They're, they're YouTubers. And in like the photography. Do they still space, like being called YouTubers? I, you know, Mark my words. That's going to be considered a pejorative one day. I think it probably is a pejorative, but I would say that these, these are people who have made their career out of YouTube. The, the, photographer Peter McKinnon was there. He's got like 4 million people who follow wow. him and stuff like that. And, and there, but there was also a woman there who does crafting and she's like, you know, some crafting person. And it's like, but her stuff is entertaining and she only has like 250,000 followers. I'm, I'm sure that many books have already been written about the YouTube phenomenon, but how it like reveals different things that we want to watch than we were ever given by, you know, by television. And I think for a lot of people, it's almost a relationship they're having with some of these people because a lot of these people, they do respond to oh, yeah. comments and things. And uh, someone on the other end of a internet connection and a screen somewhere feels like they have a little bit of a burgeoning friendship or relationship oh, yeah. with with the, this person out there. In some ways, uh, it feels kind of like a throwback to me, but at the same time, it's in, incredibly modern. And 
I think it's interesting because there is a convergence going on and there was plenty of scripted stuff. There was documentary stuff. There was just, you know, frankly, the peddling of software. There was everything in between, but you got full access to these people and they kind of pulled back the curtain and said, this is what I do. This is what works for me. Maybe it'll work for you too. So, and I think that, that, that was, um, you know, a, a little bit of sort of, uh, and there was big brands there talking about their advertising on social media and everything else. But and besides the fact there was a little bit of you could win a new purple mattress or one of these other sort of things that were going on, these giveaways that were kind of sprinkled in, which I felt were extraneous and didn't actually help. I'd say Casper mattress, but that's more of a, of a, hey, of I, a podcast. I phenomenon. sleep on a Lisa. So you I know. sleep on a Casper. <laughs> anyway, but here it is. It's, it's this weird, interesting place, too, where like, you know. Uh, how many people are sleeping on a mattress that they they got off the internet? It is a little bit of this, but uh, I do think that there's like an interesting, uh, like the culture of stuff that that you would see advertised on YouTube versus the kind of stuff that you see advertised or you hear advertised on podcasts or the radio. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, but I think that like YouTube and podcasts are sort of like two weird. It's it's they're two completely different universes. I'm sure that there's plenty of bleed over. But um, as we are trying to launch a YouTube channel with sure, sure. cool stuff, too. I mean, I, th- our, I think they, I think you, you do get that. But I think that, uh, you know, it's like the mothership will be the podcast and the YouTube stuff will be a way to get people to come to the podcast. And exactly. But um, there's people who are doing the opposite. They are a YouTube channel and now they're starting a podcast as be as like this other way to try to get people. Into exactly. Their, to their it's YouTube. just it's just interesting because it's, you know, obviously uh citizen run media you know it's democratized media but then you see like what ends up rising to the top of those things and how different is it than the professionally produced stuff that we've been consuming our entire lives until 2005 when youtube hits the scene in 2006 when podcasts hit the scene yeah it's a it's a it's a really interesting time right now and i don't believe this is the last time people are going to hear about convergence and what that future looks like with uh probably no set top box but a television set that has a whole bunch of apps on it, including like your social media sort of YouTube type of apps and your evening playlist might be a major motion picture, uh, your local television news, a podcast or a YouTube uh, program because you like to watch all these different types of things. Your future could be some sort of thing that you curate and maybe doesn't have a host the way sort of networks traditionally do, or maybe it is a host. Maybe there is this sort of networked thing that's coming, which then, hey, we know that you watch this. We know that you liked this. This next version of Netflix 2.0 or 3.0 or whatever the, the next thing is might be just about finding exactly what speaks to you and putting it all together in a manageable form. Cool. TV of tomorrow, maybe. Interesting. Yeah. So anyway, that was that was Vid Summit, and I have to actually recommend it to uh, – to our listeners, if that's the sort of thing that you're interested in, I have been to several of these sort of like convergence sort of conventions, and I think this is the best one. Excellent. That's cool. Well, and how often do they do it? I think uh, once a year, maybe there's more, but uh, they're already peddling, uh, hey, you know, sign up for 2020, and I'll put in the show notes a link. So if someone does want to go to the next one, it'll be coming Maybe next year we can go there and interview some people. I think that'd be great. Cool. Let's see if we can do that. All right, Ilya, so who do we need to thank? All right, uh, thank you, Alana Cody. Thank you, Abby and Ben. Thank you, Kay Zalatrachi, who's not hearing my voice. Definitely not listening. Yeah. Uh, uh, who else do we need to thank? Thanking our new sponsor, Musicbed. Thank you, Musicbed. Thank you so much. I hope my ad read amuses you. Yeah, I hope so, too. Uh, and Ilya, where can people find you online? You can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. And you can find me at benrockonline.com. And I'm not going to tell that story again. Don't tell it. All right. Until next time. Until episode 52. Adieu.
This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.